Hello, folks. This is another broadcast of No Filter Media. I'm your co-founder and co-host, Sly James, former mayor of Kansas City, uh, current partner of Joni Wickham, uh, to the best of my knowledge, still the grandfather of race and gray. Uh, And I will tell you that No Filter Media is a podcast that is dedicated to being eclectic. We want to hear from different people doing different stuff, telling stories about different things. All of those stories, however, have something to do with what's going on in the world today, designed to bring you information and hopefully a little bit of laughter. That's right. And I'm Joni Wickham, co-founder of Wickham James Strategies and Solutions, author of the best-selling book, The Thin Line Between Cupcake and Bitch, which Sly tells me gets thinner every day. Uh, Sly's former chief of staff and current wrangler of a second grader and a couple of fur babies, too. You can check out our firm's website at wickhamjames.com to see how we can serve you and to book us for speaking engagements. And today we're continuing our theme of Women's History Month with two of our dear friends who are just absolute movers and shakers in the education space. Well, and I will tell you, and and I always forget to mention my books uh, primarily because I can't lay claim to being a bestseller. I could just claim to be good and award-winning. But uh, the passion (laughs) for purpose and um, the opportunity agenda, bold democratic plan to grow the middle class, all of both of which have to do with uh, the nature of policy and how we can move people forward using good policy. But we're here today with one of my friends, Coquithia Hill, uh, uh, Dr. Coquithia Hill, I should say. She earned that title. Uh, my wife has a PhD. She insisted I call her doctor all the time. I keep saying, well, where in the hell is your stethoscope? Uh, and why do I feel so bad? You should be doctoring me. Um, but nonetheless, Be careful what you ask for. You got that right. Uh, you earned that title. And it, it I know Coquithia from a number of different settings, perhaps first from uh, when she joined the city council in January of 2015, replacing Michael Brooks as the fifth district council person uh, and did a bang up job there. She blew us away in her interviews and uh, then from school smart where she was working on education initiatives, but now and most prominently, I believe as the founder of black KC, a, an organization dedicated to improving education in the city by working on leadership issues and things of that nature. Um, You know, she served the time on the school board. She has devoted much time, much energy, much treasure, much research to the issue of improving education, something so important for the kids that live in this city, regardless of where they live, regardless of what their income status is. But certainly it has an impact on our kids who have been uh, systemically disenfranchised and, and left behind. So welcome, Coquithia. And Joni's got uh, Gabrielle. That's right. Gabrielle Wyatt founded the Highland Project in October of 2020, and that's an organization focused on building and sustaining a pipeline of black women leading communities, institutions, and systems, resulting in the creation of multi-generational wealth in their communities. Gabrielle most recently was a partner at the City Fund, where she supported local education leaders across the nation to expand opportunities for students in public schools through strategic advising, board service, and philanthropic investments. Gabrielle uh, is a a graduate of the University of of Maryland, Baltimore County, and the Harvard Kennedy School. She's the proud daughter of two Baltimore educators, and she credits her parents with instilling in her a passion for pursuing educational equity and excellence for all students. 
All right. Well, thank you both for being here. Like I say, it's very, very cool for me to be here. I mean, since we're doing uh, Women's History Month, I, I see uh, women from a lot of different stripes and walks here uh, uh, as we do our podcast, which is really very, very cool. Uh, but it's not lost on me that you two women have devoted so much of your efforts to education. I'd like to ask both of you just one basic question. I have my own answer to this question, but I want to hear yours. Why have you devoted so much time to education, particularly as African-American women? Thank you, Sly and Joni, for uh, always, as I said, being a champion uh, for me. Definitely, you know, onboarding me to the city council and helping me to grow in so many ways. So thank you for, uh, you know, allowing me to be on this podcast, which will boost my followers by thousands because I'm connected <laughs> to you. Excited to watch my numbers go up. But uh, yeah, you know, education um, has always, you know, just been a passion for me. Uh, I love my experience in school. And certainly when I think about my life and career and the places I've gone, I take it back to my experience in K through 12. Certainly Lincoln College Preparatory Academy. You'll meet many uh, Lincoln alums that will tell you we had a great experience in that school. Our teachers cared about us. It was unapologetically focused on uh, college access and graduation. And um I remember graduating from college, UCM at the time, and coming back and working in the school district and finding out that all the kids that were there were not getting the same quality level of education that I experienced. And I wasn't that far removed. When I graduated from CMSU, might have been 21, 22. And so I was going back into the school system to teach, and it was starkly different than the uh, education that I experienced at Lincoln. And so from then on, I was hooked. I, I knew how important education would be in the life of young people. And I know that um, when I look at my friends that did not take the same path, did not go to Lincoln or on to college, our life stories are very different and the opportunities we're afforded are very different. And so I'm just hell bent on making sure that education is not a barrier for kids to live to their fullest potential. Fantastic. Gabrielle? Gabrielle? Awesome. Thanks for having me today as the New Yorker uh, meets Baltimorean from the outside of KC. I miss seeing you guys in person. Um, And just Sly and Joni, like you two have been incredible role models and mentors to me over the last two years. You've just taught me to unapologetically focus on kids over adults and education and pursue my dreams. So just thanks for riding alongside me in this journey. Um, I chose this field because I had no other option. I grew up in a family of educators. My mom and dad actually met teaching back in Baltimore. My two older sisters are teachers. I grew up literally asking for chalkboards so I could play school in our attic. And so there really was no other option for me but to pursue a career in education. I, like too many kids, went to school well outside of my neighborhood uh, for middle school and high school. I had the opportunity to go to incredible magnet schools that were racially diverse, economically diverse, and I could study my passion. And at the time, that was acting. I thought I was going to become an actress. Um, And then in high school, I started to really hear my father differently as he started 
started to tell me more about the high school he taught at, Milford Mill Academy. It was a school that um, up until integration was thriving and then flight happened. And quickly, Milford Mill Academy became like too many schools I see in New York City, I see in Newark, New Jersey, underinvestment just became rampant. And so in high school, I decided to run for the school board um, as I started to think about the stories from my dad's school and the incredible magnet school I went to. And I just thought to myself, this is inherently unfair. A family should not have to make this choice for their daughter to travel 45 minutes every day to get to a great school. A student should not have to sit in a school that represents deep underinvestment. And so I ran as a student at age 17 for school board. Uh, I won a seat. I was appointed by Governor Ehrlich at the time. And I made it my mission that year with the superintendent to visit every high school and to speak with everyday students, uh, not student government students, um, but students who may, might not often raise their hand to say what they're feeling or thinking about their experience in schools. Um, my goal was to really raise to the surface the experiences of kids because too often education, we're talking about adults, which is ironic. Um, Very. Yes. Uh, and from there, you know, I just, I fell in love with the idea of how to scale change, how to create kid-centric policies, um, and I never looked back. 17 on the school board. Uh, I guess we can say one thing. You brought a sober view to the subject. <laughs> this is very true. <laughs> I had a fax machine at age 17. Cards. <laughs> I mean, clearly I was a dork between the, the chalkboards and the fax machines. <laughs> I love that both of you have spent time on the school board. I mean, what better avenue um, to pursue that passion for educational excellence, as Kokethia um, so eloquently worded it, and to also really get a firsthand understanding of the issues on the ground? Um, So rightly so, much has been written and elevated publicly about the inequities men and boys of color experience in our education system. Are there similar inequities uh, you would want our listeners to know about when it comes to women and girls of color? Hands down. Um, one, um, black girls are suspended and expelled at rates that are highest um, in terms of racial and ethnic groups. Two, we're not represented. These systems do not represent black girls. Um, just to give you guys a picture of what that looks like, you know there's only 3.4% of school superintendents are black women, that 78% of school board members are white, that 74% of CEOs involved in education are white. And we know that diversity matters, right? Absolutely. And we know that we get better outcomes for kids, that there's more sustainable change, there's innovation, we have stronger orgs. But as I think about the experience of black girls in schools, what keeps me up at night is this number on on representation and impact uh, in terms of policymakers and leaders who are creating the environments that they're currently sitting in. 
Yeah, I would just double down on that. I mean, we've seen in the last decade just the suspension rate for black girls uh, is just skyrocketed. And we often hear suspension in school to prison pipeline when we're talking about males or males of color. But um, black girls experienced um, discipline rate six times that of white girls. And then when we start to really unpack that data and look at the reasons why is most often for um, things that are quite subjective, like uh, disobedience or defiance right? Uh, sassiness that gets them referred. And even when we, when black girls are referred to the office, when we look at office referrals, not only are they disproportionately more likely to be referred, but they also receive harsher uh, punishments and more out of school time. And we're starting to see that uptick rate also in uh, the incarceration rates of women. And so we di- directly see how discipline in school is leading to entry into uh, juvenile justice and then beyond. And so so uh, as Gabrielle has mentioned, we do we often see women in the field of teachers, but not often in leadership. And we still don't see proportionality, particularly in our urban centers of teachers of color, uh, women of color been in those spaces. So we've got a lot of work to do in this space around really um, having equitable outcomes for women. Well, I I agree with all of that. I will say this, however, that I tried to make it a goal to find a black male teacher in elementary school. Those are about as scarce as hen's teeth. I remember being in Chicago for an educational forum and and watching some research. And the research basically was, you guys probably know this more than I have. You've probably seen the same stuff, where they took a group of kids, black, white, male, female, and put them in a room and basically told these kids how to behave. Actually, they told them how to misbehave. They took a group of teachers, black and white teachers, had them observe the behavior and then ask them a question at the end. Who misbehaved? Even the black teachers picked out the black kids versus mm-hmm. the white kids, even though the both, kid, both sets of kids were doing the exact same thing. So there is the inherent and systemic racism in society clearly seeps into the educational infrastructure as well, so strongly that it co-ops even the African-Americans who are there because they are, because of their own circumstances, identify with their group as opposed to any other group, and that includes the kids of color in their charge. So I, I think it's a very fascinating thing, which is why what you're doing is so important and what you have done is so important. Um, and, and one of the things that I'd like to ask uh, 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 Gabrielle is about you've shifted focus a little bit and, and you've combined uh, the education aspect with something that is, I think, the absolute requirement of bringing about a more equitable society, and that's building intergenerational wealth and how important and vital that is. What are you doing there? Yeah, you know, I decided to... Can you help me get a Tesla? <laughs> Different type of wealth, right? You <laughs> raise thirteen million dollars, like and that'll exchange for you the Tesla. Um, but you know, you're right. I um, really held up the mirror in 2020. I was working with leaders like Kokethia um, across the nation against the backdrop of an incredibly painful year, right? Um, and I was thinking a lot about how not only the educational experiences for black girls were decimated in 2020, but I was also thinking about how 
the economy was decimated for them. And I was thinking about how well-being was decimated for them, for everything from police brutality to lack of mental health services. And I had to just really question for myself, why did I get involved in education? And I kept coming back to wealth creation um, because, as we all know, wealth equals opportunity. It's that opportunity to respond in an emergency situation. It's the opportunity to go to college. It's the opportunity to have some cushion if you lose your job, the transition jobs. It's the opportunity to move to new neighborhoods. And, you know, COVID exposed the gaps that still exist and are pervasive and they're getting worse. And I said to myself, it's no longer enough, Gabrielle, to focus on pulling the lever of advancing education equity. We have to pull multiple levers in order to create multi-generational wealth in Black communities. Um, and so for me, you know, I'm focused right now on supporting and sustaining incredible Black leaders like Kokethia, who wake up every day saying, what is the legacy that's going to be left for our communities? And at the heart of that, that legacy is wealth. And at the heart of that, that wealth generation comes from advancing educational opportunities. It comes from increasing economic empowerment. It comes from improving well-being. And most importantly, it comes from engaging in democracy. Um, so I'm excited to launch the Highland Project. The day of this recording, we're going live with our website um, and we're focused on finding incredible women who are really impacting change in their communities, um, supporting them, sustaining them, and um, perhaps most importantly, increasing their access to capital. Uh, so we are charged with raising dollars so that every alumni of the program has access to unrestricted funding that's sorely needed to continue to advance work. Um, just to um, hone in on this point, and then I'll shut up, um, but as we think about um, Black women and girls and the the um, the experiences they have, how it looks very different from white girls, from white men. And to give you perspective on what this means in terms of funding that Coquithia has access to, in 2017, $350 million was put out by foundations across the nation for women and girls. I would just like a show of hands, number of fingers. Um, what do you think went to organizations focused on black women and girls? Of that three, how much of that three hundred and fifty? Mm -hmm. I'd say maybe fifteen thousand, fifteen million. That's exactly say the number. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly the number, which is less than five percent. Yeah. Well, you know why it's the exact number. First of all, I got kidneys, and <laughs> second of all, um, I knew that it was going to be a low number because that's a blind spot. There's a lot of things going on to uplift women. But it's always kind of like then you kind of get to the next level of uplifting black women. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, there's so much uh, now we're starting to talk a lot about how a lot of the women's movement was centered in white women. Um, and, and, you know, Gabrielle, I was going to say that that number would was lower than that. I'm actually pleasantly surprised it's that high. Yeah. Well, and, and just one other thing. I like the name of the project uh, because Highland it happens to be the name of a pretty good everyday scotch. So, and, so I'm thinking that maybe when you came up with the with the name, 
you were drinking heavily. Uh, <laughs> it was 2020, so yeah. um, that probably was likely. <laughs> Good point. Good point. <laughs> and those years when you were 17 on the school board and couldn't drink at all and really wanted to. <laughs> I made up for it in the in the last 12 months. Um, but I'll oh. share with you guys, you know, Cookie Theonosis, I, I named Highland Project not only after my love for a good drink at the end of the day. Um, but after my dad, he grew up going to Highland Beach in Maryland, which was the first black enclave um, for the talented 10th. And so as I was thinking about 2020, um, as I often was in spaces with leaders like Coquithia, I said, we need more of these spaces. Um, right. We need more places for refuge. Um, and that's that's how the name was ultimately chosen. Fantastic. Good story. And, and Coquithia, uh, let's talk about Black KC for a minute. Um, Black Casey's website, which is blackblaquekc.com for our listeners, it features the motto, still separate, still inequitable. That's a powerful damn statement. Tell us more about that. I mean, yeah, and it's so very true. I mean, we understand that um, school attendance zones are often follow uh, housing residential patterns. We know that we have cities that are hyper-segregated. We understand that many of our schools are reflections of communities. And so what we see is that um, some of our schools, particularly in the urban centers, are as uh, segregated as they were, you know, pre-Brown. And there's a lot of factors that contributed to that. But I think even if you go on our website, you will see that in 2017, there were 50.7 million children that were enrolled in public elementary and secondary schools. Of that 50 million, 7.7 million were Black, and 7.1 million, which is 93% of Black kids are attending high poverty schools. And so when you think about that, 93% of Black children are in high poverty schools. And we can talk about what high poverty schools are in, high poverty neighborhoods oftentimes. When we look at um, the outcomes for Black children in Kansas City, uh, we see that while there's all these debates about district versus charter, rural versus suburban, there is not one school system that are getting quality academic outcomes for Black children. And so our kids are in a state of crisis the highest performing school system for black kids in Kansas City is Blue Springs. And that proficiency rate is 45 percent. So that's like four out of every 10. And if you look at our state, it's sad. I mean, you have 18 percent of black children in the state of Missouri on grade level for math. So when we talk about, you know, to Gabrielle's point about creating communities where there is wealth building, our kids won't be able to enter college, graduate successfully without debt, which is a whole nother issue, right? And then be able to earn a livable wage in which they can start opening up a business to accumulate wealth for their families. And so we are, we know our kids dream big. They want to do great things. Families in their very best and families often want their kids to do better than they are. Right. But when they are sending them to a school system that is not equipping them, that's district and charter, that's suburban and rural, that's everywhere. There is no system that are get, that's getting quality academic outcomes for our black kids, our brown kids, our students with disabilities, our linguistically diverse kids. We're just not there. And so I think it provides us an opportunity. Black certainly said we want to be 
unapologetic focus on moving the needle for black kids because they are faring the worst in every system. And that's not just education. But if you go to health care, if you look at housing, if you look at like income, pay, you know, black folks are oftentimes uh, on the lowest end of that spectrum when it talks about um, quality of life. And certainly as slide note, I spent a great deal of time serving on the health commission, looking at the lowest life expectancy zip codes, and we're looking across truths. And so we're actually talking about your life. Your life could be cut short based on that where you live. Like zip code is really a proxy for how long you will live, how great your life will be, your access to healthcare and employment. And so uh, Slide, you know, talks a lot about uh, birth to five. And that's right. Like when we get parents and we talk to them about, you know, reading to your babies, the importance of like nurturing and skin to skin and all those great things. And if parents do everything they should do, right, to make sure their brains are wired right and then they turn them over to an educational system or to an early childhood system that is not of quality, then all that work is kind of for naught. And we, we don't want that. So we are uh, dedicated to building partnerships, working with and through schools and focus on building the capacity of parents and bringing folks in and say, how can we take a collective impact approach to uh, addressing these uh, egregious disparities in our school systems? You know, for our listeners, I, I want to point out that what you have heard uh, both Kokethia and Gabrielle talking about uh, are issues that are examined in some depth from a historical perspective in the book, The Color of Law. Yes. Which talks about how we got to segregated schools because we had segregated uh, neighborhoods because we had racism in this country. And it was and if people doubt the issue of systemic racism, read that book. And I guarantee you it will totally blow your uh, doubts out of the water because it's all there. It's all documented. It's all historically, factually accurate. And it has been and was incorporated into the laws of this land right here in Kansas city with JC Nichols and dividing the city along Truist Avenue. That was done deliberately and look at the impact it has had then and still has today. It's one of those things you can't get over very quickly. So, and 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 the, the data that you guys talk about, the stuff that you know, because you've lived in this environment for so long, is absolutely amazing. Uh, to sum it up, uh, when I was doing the education committee with on U.S. conference with Michael uh, Johnson, Johnson um, one of the things that we talked about was the fact that when you look at educational data and markers, black kids are at the bottom, white kids are at the top. The only time black kids are at the top is on the negative markers. And that is absolutely frightful when you think about it. And yeah. all this stuff is tied to so many other social issues. And, and you're right. And those negative markers start so early. We, we were talking about early childhood and pre-K. I remember we did a suspension summit when Cy was mayor. And I remember being struck at some of the data around suspensions in Kansas City and the fact that um, boys, little boys of color were being suspended at a disproportionate rate as young as preschool. I remember thinking, looking at, at some of these uh, criteria that um, teachers would um, use to decide whether or not to suspend a kid. I remember reading this criteria for preschoolers thinking, 
this is just how a three-year-old acts. My God, <laughs> that's a three-year-old being three. Yeah, but unfortunately, the cultural differences color the response to the action. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to know, um, Kokethia, by the way, I don't know if you saw the video or the photographs I did for Black KC. Uh, my particular favorite is me with the uh, with the uh, uh, with the African crown and speedo that you might want to check out. Um, speedo, speedo. Yes. <laughs> I haven't seen that one, but you will be pleased to know that we have a four year old that will be next to you because I know your heart is always around pre K. You got that right. Thank you so much. You got but, it. But you guys have had actually have had a chance to interact and work together on some stuff in the past. And 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 the fact that you're both here today uh, really is uh, a delight for Joni and me. Um, but I want to ask you that if you are a person listening to this and you have an interest in this area, like so many other things, the issue is so big that you're not always sure where to enter in. What do you suggest for people who say, you know, I, I, I get what they're saying. I want to help. I just don't know how or where. What do you tell people? Yeah, well, I, you know, one thing that I would start off in, uh, Gabrielle knows this because it was an exercise and a fellowship that I was a part of that I tell her changed my life. And it was uh, Octavia Butler, and it's a Black futurist, right? And our assignment was to write a letter to yourself in the future and and to really think about like what do you see what are you doing what is different because you are here what fears and doubts uh, are you able to tell yourself we're just boogeyman's because you made it through and I think so much of thinking about that and then that was juxtaposed when you think about um, African Americans or Africans that were enslaved thinking about and dreaming up a free population a free black person that will have the right to vote and to live and exist. And although we haven't fully realized that dream, we are well on our way from being enslaved in some ways. And so when I tell people, as I say, think about like, what is in your heart? Like what actually makes your heart sing? What are those things that when you're in that space, you can, you can do it, you know, uh, without, wonder about time and space. You can lean into it easily. Uh, I'll give you an example. I'm on a diet, right? And I have a, and I, and I'm trying, I have a Peloton bike and a trainer and you name it, right? But I'm like, it just might not be meant for me to have as because I don't enjoy suffering. But if you call me to talk about kids or you call me to kind of volunteer, I will go across the country. I will drive. I will stay up at night reading and preparing. I will join forces. That passion, some people think that it's about being happy. But it's like, what are you willing to suffer for? That like you can put yourself in that space and you can be in that space over time to not even actually see the rewards of it, but know that you're moving it forward. And so I know that I'm not willing to suffer giving up snacks and bread, cookies and candy. Now I'm doing better. Sly has, you know, helped me in this space with fasting. If I don't eat it, I do better. But I tend to think about uh, when you think about a space, a problem is so big. And even when we talk to parents about the educational system, it's huge. But we say, you know what, out of a problem, how can you cut an issue? 
So education and poverty and housing inequities, that those are huge things. But how can you cut a problem out of that? Oh, evictions. Okay, well, who helps us actually govern evictions? What are the policies, practices, protocols? Who are the influences? And then by there you start. So find that big thing that you love, that's that problem or that challenge, and then find an issue and then learn all about in your locus of control, how can you impart change on that particular issue? And I think you'll you'll do well. Surround yourself with great people. I mean, I have that. I have a kitchen cabinet that will be like, yeah, that is silly. Don't do that. Or, you know, that is surely going to get you dragged. I still <laughs> do it. <laughs> and I have the war rooms to prove it. It's like, now I can talk drinks and stories about that. But I can suffer through it because I know at the end of the day, the outcome and the change that I seek is greater than whatever uh, little knickknacks get thrown at me. So that would be my advice. That's great advice. Yeah. Gabrielle? Uh, I'm going to say write a check. Uh, (laughs) Look up Black KC and write a check. Um, If you're asking yourself, what can I do after hearing these numbers? Um, But in all seriousness, um, you know, an important moment for me as I think about my career in education was realizing why I never became a teacher. Um, And that was because I didn't feel that vocational calling um, that I saw embodied in my sisters and my dad and my mom. But what I began to see a calling for was being a space creator and someone who would do anything to move a mountain of resources so that educators could realize the excellence of black and brown kids. And that was an important moment for me because it said to it said to me in 2020, Gabrielle, you can create space for black women. You can create access to capital for black women. This is your role to play right now. And so I think about what um, Kokithia's advice of figuring out your passion, and I add to it, be real about your role and unapologetic about it and figuring out where Kokithia is, who the Kokithias of this world are, and writing that check, writing that recurring source of revenue. That's a big deal. Don't underestimate it um, and do the legwork. Don't don't just give nationally um, to these big organizations. They're important. They're impactful. Um, But dig locally in your backyard. Um, Find the talent. Fund them. Fund her. That's a really good point. Thank you. Um, Kokithia, to wrap up, this is a great segue to my last question for you both. Um, I'd love to hear from both of you. Where do you want to see your respective organizations in 10 years? Write that letter to yourself. Yeah, such a big, 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 that's just such a big question. You know, one, uh, one of the big, bold goals for Black just here locally is that we have about 5,500 kids that are in schools that rank in the bottom 5% of the state. And so um, we believe that 5,500 kids in 13 schools, like that is enough to get our hands around to start to like move the needle for those kids right now. And so we hope that we have no schools in the Kansas City public school system that are in the bottom 5% within the next five years. 10 years, I hope that I'm inspiring through still partnership with Gabrielle, many of other Coquithias that want to start a Black Kansas City, I mean, a Black Atlanta, 
a black Raleigh, a black Detroit, a black however, because what it really is about is someone calling the community will to highlight and bring awareness to a disparity and using a diverse uh, base of allyship to push for change. Uh, And so I hope to continue to see black expand and grow. I hope that I'm no longer there, like I'm on the board and I'm like moving on into the next journey of our life. We're really about talking like nationally, how are we seeing collective impact and some of those accountability tools we see in education also be accountability for cities in terms of housing, having quality housing and and driving communities that are thriving. And so I'm dreaming bold in 10 years and saying that one, our educational system locally will be uh, in a much better place and disparities will be slim, but that also we will have sparked the next generation of Blacks across uh, the nation because this isn't something that just Jermaine to Kansas City. This is an issue and these disparities are happening nationally in cities across America. And so we think that we have a really great playbook that leverages the best and we will see Kansas City be stronger and better and uh, more equipped to be that tier one city that we all know it can be and not because we have a Super Bowl winning team as I shed a tear (laughs) and not because we've had a very handsome mayor by the name of Sly James, but because actually our greatest investment in infrastructure was our human capital, our people. And we know that and we believe that and we built that and we built it well. So I'm hoping. So, um, so my big, hairy, audacious goal, I, like, I think a lot about seven generations from now when I'm an ancestor. I want to look down from the sky and see that there are multiple movements locally and across the nation that were sparked and led by Highland Project women. And so I think about your question, Joni, about a decade from now, um, and I think about our tagline of community capital and legacy. And a decade from now, I hope to see 150 Black women who are now alumni of the Highland Project, who when you pick up the phone will say to you, because of Highland Project, I am intentionally choosing positions of power to be in to pursue my legacy. I hope that you see that we've invested $15 million in unrestricted capital into the women who we believe in and are inspired by. Um, And I hope that you see that, let's say, at least half of them have sparked um, incredible movements across this nation. And that would be a legacy, wouldn't it? That would be an incredible legacy. Yeah. I would definitely pour a very, very large Highland Scotch from the sky. With- <laughs> <laughs> Love it. <laughs> I, have a, I have a goal to be looking down on, uh, from the sky, too. Uh, I actually want to be on the uh, Heaven Admissions Board and uh, be able to vote on whether or not Joni gets in. Um, oh, Lord. Now- <laughs> But, you know, you can ensure your spot. It just depends on how you treat me from here on out. So, oh, yeah, Lord. Here we go. Don't y'all feel sorry for me. <laughs> I, 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 don't, I don't want that in any way to diminish, to diminish the uh, weighty, um, enlightening, instructive information that you two have brought today. Um, you have um, – it's amazing to me uh, to see – um, the new woman, mm. and, and I because women have been there, but the new woman uh, is standing on top of the crate, shouting, "What's the truth?" 
whereas the older woman did not have a crate. So you guys have gone out and gotten the crates, and now you're standing on them passing out info, passing out wisdom. That's cool stuff. That's really good stuff. I appreciate it. I think it's something that I hope every woman, every girl, every man, and every boy who hears this uh, will take to heart and realize that you don't have to be a guy on the golf course smoking a cigar to be passing out wisdom. It happens uh, with women who um, who drink Highland Scotch and 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 have a great affection for uh, that that former mayor guy. So thank you all for doing what you've done today. Thank you both so much for joining us. We really have appreciated hearing what you have to say. And um, just in closing, I appreciate the fact that both of you saw a problem and you're doing something about it. You're not sitting around bitching about it, waiting for somebody else to solve it. You're actually doing the hard work. So kudos to you. Thank you. And neither one of you you, uh, have a problem with crossing back and forth over that cupcake and bitch line. (laughs) (laughs) You got to do what you got to (laughs) do. Thank you both for having us. This was a load of fun. All right. Thank you. you. Take care. Peace. Be cool.